0: very much, Martin. So I think we make an apology for the fact that we are all going to repeat some things. I mean, you know, we haven't sat down and shown each other our the slides. We, there are certain themes that are going to take a while to permeate through the room. So we'll, we'll, we'll repeat them over and over again. And we may not always agree. So my job is to, I think, tell you what I think PLS is when I see it in clinic. And that's slightly different from reviewing the literature and saying, well, this is what the international criteria are. You know, And the reason for that is in the next slide, really, which is to do with the famous anthropomorphic egg called Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty um, said that when he uses the word, um, it means just what he chooses it to mean. And I have to sort of say that I've ended up concluding that I'm a Humpty Dumpty kind of neurologist when it comes to something like TLS. Because the minute you start creating criteria, you probably exclude some people who you would think, on a sort of gut level, have PLS. But you can't quite easily use the criteria to place them into that diagnostic category. So I'll, I'll be interested to hear from my colleagues. I think that if Chris McDermott and Mary Kingwood and Martin and I sat down in front of a patient, we probably would agree most of the time as to whether it's PLS or not. Whether we could come up with criteria, that there are other neurologists to agree with us, is actually quite difficult. So I think that, you know, so Chris, um, will tell you about some genetics, uh, and I'll just touch on that as well. Um, the question I think that Martin's posed is, is it the same as ALS or not? Does that matter? Do people in this room care about that question? Well, um, there are some clues from clinical data, from pathology, from genetics that will help us understand it. But I agree with Martin that we may not come to a conclusion at the moment. One day we will. But I think if it does matter, what you call a disease. So just to give you an example of how actually thinking has changed about diseases, take Parkinson's disease. Most people have some idea what that is. It's an age-related neurogenetic condition and historically what was Parkinson's disease was what neurologists called people who were stiff, had a tremor and improved with a drug called levodopa. So it's a sort of clinical definition and so quite assumes we're talking about one disease. And then you move into an era when uh, people start looking very carefully at the brain in a very sophisticated way, looking at the morphology of brain changes and the molecular signatures of diseases, and actually realise there are things where the very characteristic changes in the brain occur in Parkinson's. But not all the cases have got it. So you can define it by a mixture of pathology and what you see in life. as a clinico pathological. So now we're still in the sort of most of the 20th century. We've got to that stage, and we're starting to get the sense that maybe it's not one thing. And then... We start doing lots of genetic studies, and we realize that some people have their Parkinson's disease because of a gene change, and others who look quite similar have another gene change, a complete separate gene. So that's definitely two things. And then some people have no gene change that we can work out. So it's at least three things. In fact, there are at least 12 or 13 genes that are called genes of Parkinson's. And there are other people who have what's called sporadic disease, meaning... They don't have a detectable gene change, but everyone senses that they have their Parkinson's because of a mixture of genes and environment, for example, and ageing. So emotionally disease, in its broader sense, is exactly like that. It's not one thing, and therefore is even PLS one thing. Do the people in this room who have PLS have it for the same reason? I suspect they probably don't. So I think that, that you know, is it, it one disease? starts to become a slightly meaningless question. What matters is... Um, well, so, so I've used this um, document to sort of say that we're a bit stuck in the past. This is the M&D Association Handbook of motion Neuron Disease. And I don't put it up here to be critical, because every single medical student who comes into my clinic, I say, you know, tell me about motion Neuron Disease. They say, well, there are four types. There's ALS, there's PLS, there's PMA, and there's PBP. And so all the neurology textbooks have that, as does this document. I do not use that classification. I have abandoned it some time ago, with the exception of PLS, reasons I'll come to. Because I don't think it means anything to me in terms of what I want to do is sit in front of the patient and tell them what's wrong with them, what it means for them. So is the motor disease we see in the clinic one thing? It's not one thing biologically. It's not one thing clinically, because we see people who have what Martin referred to as Charcot ALS which is a rapidly aggressive condition that generalizes and affects many different segments of the body, has respiratory involvement, has speech and swallowing involvement. We have other people who have a disease, that seems, curiously to stay in their legs for years, or in their arms for years. Is that the same thing? Well, it might be the same thing under the microscope, but in front of the patient we have different conversations. So it's about individualizing people's um, condition to help them understand what's wrong with them. So I think it does matter. It's an important question. Because people want to know what the future holds, so we need to improve our ways of actually understanding what their disease is in a broader context. And so that's a key part of caring for somebody. And that's sort of what we do in a sort of specialist center, which perhaps isn't done in a general neurology clinic, is we say, well, okay, you've got a tricky condition here, but let's try and put it in context for you and help you understand what the future holds. And that's so I think understanding what the relationship of people with PLS to ALS in general is very important. But of course, what we'd really like to be able to do is to do clinical trials of people with PLS. And I don't know that the same drugs are going to work in PLS and ALS, but at the moment people with PLS are disenfranchised, they are shut out of clinical trials because they are too atypical and it's going too slowly, and that's not good enough. We have to find out how to measure change and how to do trials this disease and find out whether it is the same thing. As ALS. So it's an important question. So, what I do in clinic is I do what I could fancifully call a multi axial approach. All I simply mean by that is I'm taking, and Martin has already mentioned this, what are the core features of the disease that help you understand someone's trajectory? And in ALS, that is, what is the intrinsic rate of progression? So, you've seen that very nicely in Martin's data. Everyone is on their own slope of decline, and that's a major factor in dictating you know, how the future pans out. And undoubtedly, in PLS, it's slower. What is the site of onset? Well, ALS can pop out in any of your forelimbs, limbs, or in your speech and swallowing muscles, or in your breathing muscles, or in your trunk muscles, in a number of different locations. It can also present with cognitive change. So it's got a sort of multifocal onset. Um, to so what extent, is the condition restricted, as I mentioned, to legs or arms? That's a big determinant. How quickly does it spread from one anatomical region, legs, arms, trunk, and so on, to another? That's a major factor in determining the trajectory. Is the respiratory involvement present or absent? Is there extra motor involvement, usually meaning cognitive involvement? So again, these are reinforcing things that Martin has said to you. That's how we actually view the patient in front of us, using these different and that gives us a a much better sense of what this means to that individual Um, so in fact that's just a repeat of what Martin has told you so I'm going to move on from that so to me there is a difference between ALS and PLS ALS has a, um, a kind of rate of change that makes us give people six monthly appointments and sometimes annual appointments and that's the biggest testament if you like to why it's different our LS patients come every three months, because every three months something's different, something clinically meaningfully different. And while, you know, if I really want to understand how PLS is developing, I probably need to see people every six months, sometimes every year. So that tells you straight away it's got a different pace of change. I accept that there are people who perhaps are on a different end of the spectrum where it might be brisk, but I'm talking in general terms here. What's the side of onset? Well, it's rather stereotyped in PLS. In most cases, it is the lower limbs, and it ascends. There are cases of what I call top-down PLS, starts in speech and swelling muscles, very there for ages. But essentially, there's a rather limited repertoire of clinical behavior. So that separates it out, in my mind, from ALS. And that fits into the, same, the next point, which is the restriction to anatomical regions. So ALS, by definition, really, almost, you know, it will progress from one segment to another quite rapidly. it has got this rather orderly uh, progression. And people with PLS may have some respiratory um, discomfort, I would call it, but I don't think that in general they have respiratory you know, involvement of their neuromuscular system in the way that people with ALS do. So it's quite different. It seems to spare respiratory involvement in, in many respects. And similarly, cognitive change—you um, know—the complexities about whether there are some subtle uh, differences in the way that people view the world. But essentially, people with PLS do not have the kind of cognitive that we see in up to half of our patients with ALS. So we um, recently sort of looked at our clinic database, and about four percent of people have been called by Humpty Dumpty A or B uh, PLS. So that's what we've done, and it's—it's. Um, it's, So it's a small proportion, really, but actually it's quite a lot of people um, out of 1,200. And the question is, how many people are there in the UK with PLS? We have no idea. We we can sort of guess, but we don't know. So one of the things we're doing with the uh, register, which has been funded by the association, is to actually map out everybody in the UK with vision disease. And we will, I think, within five years, maybe sooner, actually be able to answer the question, how many people with PLS, probably between 500 and a thousand, but I don't know the number. But um, this is a our local version of the slide that Martin put up. What's missing actually with this, something we should probably try and put in, is what happens to people without any neurological disease. So the yellow line is PLS. And actually the really interesting comparison would be if you simply took a group of people between the age of fifty and seventy and you followed those up, it might look quite similar to that yellow line. So the principal point here is that while PLS has huge challenges for people, it is not necessarily <coughs> something that is life-limiting. And that's something that we, is, we, we like to emphasize, and needs more research, I think. One factor that Chris might focus on, so I'll just briefly cover it, is, is actually how you distinguish this from something called hereditary spastic paraparesis. So some of the people in the room might have been given that diagnosis at some point. It's not a great term. Uh, because many of the patients don't have a family history, and we still use that term. Probably more sporadic patients than there are families, actually, but there's certainly plenty of them. And some of those do have genetic changes, so you know, can be written by genetic change, but it's often a condition that pops out of, out of nowhere. So these patients can look quite similar initially, but actually, to my mind, they have a slower rate of progression. Um, it's very much a lower limb dominant condition, there's sometimes a bit of sensory involvement to find. And um, symmetry is a very core feature. PLS is pretty symmetrical, but can start asymmetrically. And dysarthria is is rare. So not unheard of, but rare. So there's some overlap cases that will be quite difficult to distinguish. But in most cases, I think, we have very little difficulty once time is elapsed, saying this is HSP and this is PLS. So I think it's a different entity. So why do I at least some of the time convince myself that PLS is a completely different condition to ALS. So I fluctuate. I haven't quite decided. But part of me thinks it may well be a different condition. And this is one of the reasons, which is that if you take families with inherited forms of ALS, for example this one due to a SOD1 mutation, almost every type of ALS that you saw on the slide earlier, you can find in those families. This is an example where somebody presents with Charcot ALS with the arrow there, very typical and then you've got people with lower limb restricted her grandfather just restricted to his lower limbs or great uncle then you've got people with bulb onset spinal onset, respiratory onset or an upper motor neuron predominant form but not PLS so because it's quite rare anyway the argument is that maybe those people are out there in families, families, so there are a few published reports suggesting it can be inherited but I'm not convinced I think that for some reason, this is not a condition which seems to be inherited in any simple way. And because it doesn't belong in these ALS families, it just makes me wonder if biologically something different. So, sometimes people say well, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. I really find that disappointing actually, because it means that, you know, you have to wait for a very long time for the diagnosis, and you have to have endless tests, and then maybe there's a lot of head-scratching. Actually, I think I can recognise PLS in the vast majority of cases. I agree, some years sometimes have to elapse, two or three years at least. But I don't think it's a diagnosis of exclusion. I think it's got distinctive features. You have to exclude certain conditions, HSP, some forms of MS, for example. But it's distinctive, and I think you can make the diagnosis. The essence is this ascending stiffness and spasticity of the limbs, usually beginning in a ascending, upwards sometimes descending. Because there's variable rate of progression, as with all of these things. And there'll be people who don't feel they fit into that description. So I can only really talk about groups of people and generalities. But if you do that, to me, PLS and ALS sort of fall out of slightly separate conditions. So I think that summarizes my sort of view. But very finally, why why does it happen in the first place? So we don't know. But here's a bit of speculation for you to end on. If you look at the corticospinal tract that Martin showed you, so this is the connection from the top of your brain down to your spinal cord, and you look at what's happened in evolution. So uh, rats and us had a common ancestor about 80 million years ago, and they've only got 73,000 fibres in their corticospinal tract. And then you go down to chimpanzees, we're separated by 5 million years, they have about 800,000. Now it's obvious why chimpanzees are more manually dexterous than rats, they're quite different creatures but then in a short space of time we've acquired another 30%, 30-40% of fibres. What are these fibres doing? Why have we acquired them? And at the same time in human evolution we are the only species that lives for substantially longer periods of time past the time of reproduction. So all other species, including chimpanzees have their children until they're 15 they die Now, we, therefore, have a long period of time to age, and there's all sorts of complex reasons why that might be favorable for the species. But what it means is that the evolutionary pressure to be fit when you're reproductively active could contain a penalty for some people, unluckily. And that corticospinal tract is central to things that make us human, walking on two feet upright um, and manual dexterity. So it could just be a weakness in the system that, unfortunately, unlucky people revealed to us, but for the speeches as a whole, it's been part of our success. So I'll leave it on that point and hand over to Olaf, who's going to talk about the neuropathology.